John Samus is right. Life does have its losses and its crosses, its sighs and its tears. Those are adversities. And all of us face adversities from time to time of one kind or another. Sometimes it comes in the way of physical disability or injury. Other times adversity comes in difficult relationships that develop, a strain in a marriage. Adversity can be in the form of infertility for some, financial pressure for others, unemployment, or persecution for one's faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Adversity comes in many sizes and many shapes and colors, and all of us, all of us know the meaning of adversities. Sometimes we think we're the only ones who are going through a certain experience, when the fact is that at any one time there are many in our congregation going through very similar experiences. There are times when you and I complain to God about the hard times we're passing through. But that was not the attitude of the Apostle Paul, even during one of the most difficult, adverse experiences of his whole life. As he wrote the book of Philippians, where we're taking up our study today, he was facing the most difficult point in his life up till then. As he wrote this epistle, he was chained to two Roman soldiers as he awaited a hearing before Nero. Already had been a prisoner for perhaps up to three years. And not only that, he had been a prisoner based upon trumped-up charges. So here is a man whose whole life is in high gear, chained, under house arrest, imprisoned, when everything within him wanted to go out and share the gospel with people. It was a tough few years in the life of the Apostle Paul. A terribly adverse set of circumstances, and yet in the midst of them, as this letter indicates, Paul's outlook on life was one of triumph. The secret of such an attitude is not our circumstances, but Christ. As Paul says eventually in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, he says. The living of life is Christ. In other words, he's not living in his own resources. He's living in the resources of Christ. His triumph did not depend upon the set of circumstances, but upon the Savior who was Lord of those circumstances. He concludes the book by saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in this epistle, the Apostle Paul exhorts the church of Jesus Christ to rejoice as you and I face our own set of adversities. Whatever your adversity may be today, you can experience joy. The joy of Jesus Christ right in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your tears and your sighs, your crosses and your losses, you can know the joy of Jesus Christ. Truly, you can. How? 
How is that possible? That is what the Apostle writes about in this book, it seems to me. Finding joy in life's adversities. On the wall behind me you see six words that basically give some to the book. One Lord, one mind, one mission. In the light of those truths represented by those words, how can you and I find joy in the midst of the adversities of our own lives? In the first place, we find joy in the adversities of life by cultivating a prayerful heart. That's what I want to talk about today. In cultivating a prayerful heart, you will find fellowship with God, and in that fellowship, there will be a deep well of joy in your life. Paul begins this book with a word about the place that prayer occupied in his life. Read the first paragraph along with me. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Time out for just a moment. You will notice that although this church was but a few years old, it was well organized and established. Both elders or overseers and deacons had been appointed in the church, were leading the church on in the midst of its circumstances. Now Paul continues, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In fact, he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You clearly see that Paul had cultivated a prayerful heart. That's important for you and me as well, and I think many of us realize that. In the recent survey that we conducted as a church, help with personal devotions and help with prayer life were the two top expressed individual needs in that survey, especially among those of us who are 44 years of age and younger. Help with personal devotions and growing in prayer. I would say help cultivating a prayer life are the greatest felt needs that we have as a congregation. And another question, two-thirds of the congregation ask for help in being consistent in prayer. Again, that was very strong in the 
age group 44 years and younger. And by the way, that represents seven out of every ten people in our adult church, 44 years of age and younger. And even those of us who are in the older group have expressed a strong sense of need to cultivate a heart of prayer. What does a heart of prayer look like? What do we mean when we talk about a prayerful heart? And how does that contribute to our joy in the midst of adversities? It seems to me that in this paragraph we've read, the Apostle Paul describes to us what a prayerful heart looks like. In the first place, he says, a prayerful heart is a grateful heart, verses 3 through 5. Paul saw something to be thankful for, even in the midst of the terrible circumstances in which he found himself. And what he found to be thankful for was the fellowship, the partnership, that he had in the gospel with that Philippian church. In his mind, he goes all the way back to the first day with them. He remembered arriving in Philippi and on the Sabbath day going out by the river and finding there a group of Jews who were worshiping. Apparently there were not enough of them in Philippi to build a synagogue. And so they met under the open air out by the river. And there Paul proclaimed Christ to those people. And one of those who was in the midst of the congregation on that first day was Lydia, a businesswoman, a seller of purple dye and purple cloth. And the scriptures say that the Lord opened her heart to believe. And after the service was over, she implored Paul and his party to come to her house. She wanted to be their hostess for as long as they were going to be in Philippi. And uh, Paul and his party felt a little awkward about that, apparently, and deferred, and yet she persisted and insisted. She said, if you count me as a true believer, then you will come to my house. And so they did. Paul looked back upon those days with a lot of fond memories, and he says, from the very first day until this very day, I thank God for you and for that fellowship that we have in the gospel. In the midst of whatever adversity may be in your life today, you too can find something for which to be grateful. A prayerful heart is a grateful heart. I remember the comment of Matthew Henry when after he had been robbed, he wrote some things in his diary. And among them, he said, I am thankful that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. That's pretty good. You and I can always find something for which to lift up our hands to God and say, Father, I thank you. Despite the pain that I am in today, I give thanks to you for this. A prayerful heart is a grateful heart. That's what it looks like. What can you give God thanks for? You know it is a thankful heart that's a happy heart. If you want to find joy in your adversity, mine deeply into your adversity and find in there those golden nuggets for which you can say, Father, thank you for this. In doing that, you will cultivate a prayerful heart. Secondly, he tells us that a prayerful heart 
is a confident heart. Paul's confinement did not limit God, because God knows no bounds. God treads the floor of the fiery furnace. He enters the rooms, the doors being shut. He comes to his exile on the island and takes him to heaven for a revelation of Jesus Christ. The servants of God may be persecuted and may be imprisoned, but God can never be bound. God knows no confinement. And even though Paul cannot be in Philippi, God is at work there. And he says, I am confident that the very God who began that work in you when we were with you is going to continue his work. He's going to carry it on right until the day of Jesus Christ when you see him face to face. And so in the midst of his own confinement and adversity, the prayerful heart of Paul is a confident heart. God is at work. God is in Philippi. God is doing his thing even though Paul is limited. Can you be confident in God that way in your own confinement? In whatever the chains are in your life, whatever the adversity is that's blowing against you, do you see a God who is bigger than your circumstances? A God who is over all of it, in control? A prayerful heart is a heart that is confident in God and knows that God is at work this moment in the life. And he is in your life. Believe that. A prayerful heart is a confident heart. But thirdly, I notice that a prayerful heart is an affectionate heart. It's not uncommon for adversity in all of us to shrink our concern for others. Do you have the same tendency I do? When things get tough in life, you become self-focused. I remember a lady in our church in Kentucky who was dying of brain cancer. And one day our senior pastor, I was his associate, went in to see her and she was depressed. And when she looked up, she saw him and she said, I'm having a pity party, now leave. <laughs> and then she laughed. A pity party is the smallest party you can have, just yourself. And it's so easy for us to fall into that, isn't it? But a prayerful heart is an affectionate heart. You see, prayer resists that self-focusing tendency all of us have. When we pray, we are reminded there are other people going through similar things that we're experiencing. Paul was reminded of that. As he thought of those Philippians and prayed for them, he was mindful that they too were passing through a time of affliction and suffering. There was this deep well of emotion in Paul that conveys his, is conveyed in his words. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. No self-pity here. His heart is filled with affection, and prayer had caused that. 
It had helped him keep his focus on others. They were co-sharers with him in God's grace, he says. That's the most intimate bond that one can have to another. The most meaningful relationship in existence is that relationship that we have because of the bonds of the grace of God with other people. The commonality that Paul had with the Philippians in their trouble was nothing compared to the commonality that they shared in grace. It seems to me that actually adversity ought to deepen our affection for others, not diminish it. In fact, if you had an opportunity in those years when people were persecuted in the Eastern Bloc to visit them in their churches, you would find there a people who loved each other intensely. The adversity that they were going through bonded their hearts even more closely in the grace of God. They were co-sharers in it. And as they prayed for their church and prayed for one another, there was deep affection that was there and joy. There's not joy in self-pity, but there is joy in caring for others and praying for others and, and sharing God's grace with them. A prayerful heart is an affectionate heart. It can't help but be. You can't hate people that you're praying for. You can't forget people you're praying for. Indeed, you grow more affectionate for them. And finally, a prayerful heart is a perceptive heart, verses 9 through 11. Paul tells us exactly how he prayed. Would you be comfortable this morning if somehow God had tape-recorded your last prayer time and played it for all of us to hear? How would you feel about that? You say, well, I can't even remember when that was. Uh, well, that may be a problem, too. Suppose God had recorded that last five minutes or 30 minutes that you spent with him and said, now I want all of you to listen to how John prays. Here it is. Click. Paul was not embarrassed to record his prayer for the Philippians. He was very transparent about it. He says, here is my prayer for you. And basically Paul's prayer was one. He says, I pray for your love. Love is the fountainhead of all Christian graces. Out of love flows everything else. He says, I pray for your love, that, that sense of sacrifice for the welfare of others that God has put inside of you. He says, I want that sense of sacrifice, that sense of sharing with others, that generosity that God's put in your heart. I want that, he says, to flood over your lives. But he didn't want it to be flabby and gullible and swampy. You say, you mean Christian love can be gullible? Yes, it can. He says, I want your love to flood over in knowledge and insight. I want you to have a, a love that is empowered by depth of knowledge and by real insight into situations. Now, why does he pray that? He tells us. He says, so that you can discern on those things that differ 
What does he mean by that? You've probably come to that place in your life where you know that many of the decisions of life are not between good and bad, but between good and best. There are many good things in life that you and I can be involved in, many good things that can be the objects of our love, our sacrifice, our generosity. Paul says, I want you to choose to invest yourselves in those things that are the best. Not even the good, the best. So you can see the difference between the two. He says, I pray that your love will be empowered with knowledge and insight. He says, when you begin to live that way, making good decisions, when you begin to invest your life based upon what is best, then you will be pure and blameless when Jesus comes for you. You will not give offense. You will not be a stumbling block to other people. You will not be offensive, worthy of blame, but blameless. And he says you'll be pure. The word there means sincere. The idea is to check it by the light. When I was a little boy, my widowed mother helped support our family by selling eggs in Topeka, Kansas. We lived 25 miles out of the city on the farm. We had about 100 chickens. And when they would produce well, we would sell eggs to supplement her income as a grocery store clerk. And we children had a part in preparing the eggs. Of course, we gathered them at the hen house. And then when it came time to go for the selling, we had to check the eggs and clean them. And we would get our paper together and our wet cloths to, to wash the eggs. And the final step was to check them by holding them up to a light bulb to make sure that the inside was what it's supposed to be. And I'm not going to go any further detail than that. And to make sure that the shell had no crack in it. Because when the light shone through the shell, the cracks were visible immediately. And you didn't want to give a customer a cracked egg. Paul says, I am praying that your love may be so discerning that you will live and choose to make good decisions in life. And the result of that is when you are held up to the light at the second coming of Christ, there will be no cracks in your life made visible. Sometimes those cracks are invisible to our eyes, but God knows when they're there, and when that light shines, everyone's going to see them. That's how Paul prayed. How do you pray for people? So often our praying is uh, limited to physical and material things, and we need to pray about those. But oh, that we would learn to really be perceptive in praying. There have been times when people have said, I want you to pray for this. And I've not prayed for that. I've prayed for something else in their lives. Because I just didn't sense in my heart that that, that, that was what God wanted. You and I need to cultivate a prayerful heart. A prayerful heart is a perceptive heart. It learns how to pray. That doesn't happen overnight. It comes with practice. Prayer is like a muscle. It gets flabby unless it's exercised. 
The more that you and I pray, the more perceptive we will be in knowing how to pray for the people. So that's what a prayerful heart is like. Oh, that God would give us prayerful hearts. Because it is when you and I have a prayerful heart, as described here, that we will find joy in our adversities. But how do we cultivate that kind of heart? I'd like to suggest to you five ideas this morning about how to cultivate a prayerful heart in your own experience and walk with God. The first idea is summarized in the word intention. Intention. The idea is that you and I must choose to cultivate a prayerful heart. That is step number one. It does not happen by accident. It is not by chance. You and I develop prayerful hearts as the result of a deliberate decision on our part. There are very few people here that would say, I don't like the idea of a prayerful heart. Most of us would say, that's a great idea. But if we're serious about it, step number one is the intention to develop it. The decision to do it. To say, I will, by the grace of God, develop that kind of heart. It's an act of the will. If we're serious about cultivating a prayerful heart, it begins with intent to do so. David, who experienced as much adversity as any of us, in one occasion cried out and said, Evening and morning and at noon, I will cry unto God. What was he saying? He says, I am intent on doing this. I will cry unto God and I will do it three times a day. In the evening, in the noon, and at morning, I will cry unto God. There was intention on his part to do that. The reason that some of us have never developed our prayer lives is because we've lacked intention. We've liked the idea. We've lacked the intent to do it. The second idea I'd like to share with you is summarized in the word integrity. If we're serious about cultivating a prayerful heart, we must be a people of integrity with God. There must be transparency about us. We must keep short accounts with God. When we allow unconfessed sin to accumulate in our lives, it deadens the soul. So we need to keep short accounts with God. There must be integrity and wholeness about us. We must be open with God about our struggles. Some people think that if they told God what they're really struggling with, God would reject them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do we actually think God doesn't know what we struggle with? Do we actually think that God doesn't know the thoughts in our minds and our hearts and the temptations that we face? He reads us completely. There's nothing that surprises him. Our need is to be transparent about that and to tell God. be a people of integrity in prayer. <clears throat> Third idea is summarized in the word information. We must learn 
about God and come to know Him and make that a priority in our lives so that we have some understanding of this God that we're praying to. We must gain information about prayer. We can do that not only in reading the Bible, which is where we start, but in reading books on prayer by E.M. Bounds, who wrote many of the classics, or Oswald Chambers, or in a more contemporary mode, the book by Bill Hybels, Too Busy Not to Pray, I think, is a, a very practical primer on prayer. And don't forget to read biographies of people, men and women of prayer, one of which would be the story of George Mueller, and there are others. Gain information about what it means to pray. If you and I are going to cultivate a prayerful heart, we need the insight and the counsel of others so that we can develop more quickly. And we must come to know the God that we're praying to. The fourth idea in how to cultivate a prayerful heart can be summarized in the word inspection. If we're really serious about cultivating this kind of heart, then we need to learn to inspect our lives for God's fingerprints. A few years ago, when we went through the spiritual adventure together, we called it I Spies. Remember that? We looked for those times in our lives when we spied God intervening on our behalf. So often we miss those. And so if we're serious about cultivating a prayerful heart, it involves inspection. Watching for God to be at work in our lives. Watching for Him. And finally, if we're serious about cultivating a prayerful heart, it involves intimacy. The idea is here to develop a sense of God's nearness and God's dearness so that prayer becomes a conversation with a friend. So often we look upon prayer as being that which punctuates a day. We go through the day oblivious to God and suddenly now it's time to pray. And then we go on again oblivious to God. When in fact what real prayer is is learning to converse with God through the course of the day's activities. And we may pause here and there and speak to God about this or that, but prayer is a conversation because we're intimate with God. We're walking with God. The only way to be intimate with someone is to spend time with them. Not just the 15 minutes set aside in the morning or the evening, but throughout the day. I want that. I believe many of you do as well. David was a man, as I said, who knew a lot of adversity. I remember one occasion when Saul was seeking his life, David fled south into the area of Philistia, and he went to the city of Gath. Now why he went there, I do not understand, because Gath was the home turf of Goliath, whom he had killed. And if there was any man who was infamous to those people, it was David who had killed their hero. And yet he went to the city of Gath. And he was recognized. And they began to watch him. And David knew that he was in trouble. And he was fearful. And so he began to feign madness. He went to the city gates and he would claw against the wood. 
And he allowed his saliva to run down his beard to look like he was crazy. So that when the word finally came to the king of, of the city, of that city-state, and he was told what David was acting like, he said, don't you think I have enough crazy people around me already? Don't bother me with him. And uh, David had his opportunity, and he escaped and got out of the city. In reflection of that experience, he wrote Psalm 34. Sometime in your own time, read Psalm 34 in light of those five ideas I just shared with you and see how they're interwoven, that psalm. David cultivated a prayerful heart, and therefore God said, He is a man after my own heart. That's the kind of a woman, that's the kind of a man God wants you to be. If we're ever going to find joy in our life's adversities, and many of us this morning are going through some kind of trouble, it begins here by cultivating a prayerful heart. Someone has written, Prayer is a golden river at whose brink some die of thirst while others kneel and drink. Would you bow with me, please? A golden river is before you, child of God even in the midst of the darkest days of your life where the most painful experience you've been through a golden river flows at your feet if you wish you can die of thirst standing there right beside it your soul can shrivel up you can begin to doubt God you can enter into depression and discouragement you can wander spiritually or you can kneel and you can drink of that river that God has provided and find in it comfort and joy in the midst of your adversity. How I pray that you will do the latter, that you will today choose to cultivate a heart of prayer so that you can experience joy in your adversity. <clears throat> if that is your desire today, to cultivate that kind of heart, I'm going to ask you to indicate that to God just by an uplifted hand. And say, God, that is the kind of heart I want, a heart of prayer. Yes, many hands, mine included. I want that kind of heart. Well, if we want it, we can have it. But we have to cultivate it. Father, help us to do that. May it not only seem like a good idea at the end of this service, but may it be the intent of our hearts to cultivate it. May we employ every means of grace that you've given us to become men and women of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.